Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Killer Hangover. I'm Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week, I will be covering part two of the Gina Renee Hall case that we started last week. But this week is going to be just like our normal episodes and mom will be ending this episode with a paranormal story. Hopefully you can cheer us up a bit. Hopefully I can lighten things up. Yes. Yes. But she is lighting things up with a cocktail. Oh, I'm going to light things up. That's for sure. (laughs) Uh Oh, (laughs) what is our cocktail from Virginia this week, mom? Okay, so I put two of my favorite things together. I don't know if you're gonna like it as much as me. Well, I can guess one of them is probably Corbell. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's one That's of your favorite things. Pretty easy. <laughs> I always Google from the state anything with champagne. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so. yeah. That's a good idea. That's what I do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is called Virginia Black Whiskey Champagne Cocktail. Oh, whiskey. Yeah. Sorry. And I, I have to apologize right now. I had to substitute Jim Beam Black for the Virginia Black Whiskey because, well... COVID. (laughs) And I don't even know if it's COVID. I don't know if they really don't deliver across this, I mean, Kansas. I don't know if they deliver across the Mississippi. That's what the guy working at the liquor store said. But, you know, before COVID, I think he could have ordered it. Yeah, yes. And, you know, I've actually learned a lot, too, when it comes to, like, the liquor laws of different states and where they can ship and to whom they can ship. Because when I was looking for a certain liquor for one of the states, the same liquor store is in Kansas and Missouri. And he's like, well, we can't have that here. But Kansas might be able to have them ship it to them. I know, it's weird. So it's like, okay, this is just so odd. It's it's so weird. Like when we visit wineries in, in California... We'll go to the winery and they'll be like, yeah, we can't ship that to Kansas, but we can ship it to Missouri. I think we had some shipped to yes. your house one time when you were yes. living in Missouri because we couldn't get it. It's like, oh, good grief. We've got to know somebody in every state so we yes, can get it shipped no matter ship what. It. <laughs> so anyway, sorry. I think it would have been a lot. Not saying anything about Jim Beam, but I think it would have been smoother with the Virginia Black Whiskey. But anyway, that's a double shot of that. A double shot in this little glass? Yeah, it's in a highball. Um, two drops of lemon juice. I had more than two drops because I used a real lemon and I squeezed and it went. Psh! So you got what? <laughs> <laughs> so you've oh got God. more than two drops. Two to three drops of the bitters, and you like those. I do. And a half a teaspoon agave syrup, and then six ounces more or less of the champagne or sparkling hopefully you put more than less in mine you definitely got more okay thank you and then ice if you okay. want ice so um i know it's not going to be exactly to your tasting but give it a shot all right let's try we're this. always up for trying new things right yes yes oh as i smell this no <laughs> it's strong okay. okay cheers honey cheers mama Ooh, okay. Is that okay? The Corbel definitely intensifies the whiskey flavor, I feel. Really? Yeah, it makes it more bubbly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like... Whiskey usually isn't bubbly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, like, makes the whiskey bubbly. Carbonated? Yes. I'm happy... That's only a highball. <laughs> yes, and I'm happy that you added more Corbel to mine. I would probably take a little more... <laughs> 
a little more Corval, a little less whiskey, and this would be great. <laughs> I think it's actually pretty darn good. This might definitely be my after five cocktail. Honey, cocktail hour. <laughs> Are you snapping at Obi or <laughs> snapping at my imaginary butler? <laughs> All right. I just got the mad out after last week's episode. Now you're going to oh, get ready. Mad There's a little more again. Just a little. Oh, I'm just going to keep more. drinking. Maybe that'll mellow me <laughs> or not. We <laughs> <laughs> ready for some fighting. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> So if you guys haven't listened to last week's episode, I highly suggest going back and doing so. You really don't want to miss a thing when it comes to this case. A big game of telephone, as I've called it. For those that listened last week, let's go over a quick summary. It, in the best way I possibly can. A beautiful, charming 18-year-old Gina Renee Hall goes out dancing on a Saturday night in June of 1980. We can't know for sure what happened in the Marriott Inn Lounge dance hall, but By all reports, when she left there, she didn't leave alone. Now, knowing who Gina was, I full-heartedly believe that Gina did not leave willingly that night. Can I add here that she was only there for a little over an hour? A little over an hour. I'd even suspect that there was foul play out in the parking lot by not just the suspect, Steve Epperly. But I believe possibly Bill King had something to do with it all as well. Mm -hmm. Again, this is... My opinion. Mine too, yeah. Our opinion. (laughs) Statements have changed time and time again, and it wasn't until later that stories all kind of started working together as if the story was composed. That's what Delena, Gina's sister, believes as well, and here we are now. Time and time again, the story is told using the narrative from the testimony that Bill King, Epperly's best friend, gave in court. Time and time again, this half-truth is told. So this week, I'm going to continue in doing the best I can at telling the story and including Gina's voice in it as well. We left off with me telling you that the Monte Carlo was discovered under the railroad trestle on Hazel Hollow Road, left abandoned with the trunk wide open. Crazy. Now, this part of the story is very interesting to me. A police officer driving down Hazel Hollow Road just around 5 a.m. Sunday morning. So that Saturday night when Gina went missing, basically just a few hours after Gina made that call. Gina called her sister like 1 or 1.30. This police officer is driving by at 5 a.m. He sees a Monte Carlo parked on the side of the road under the railroad trestle with its trunk wide open. There was a car in front of it. And behind it, he wasn't too alarmed by this, though. This was an area where fishermen often parked to go down to the river to get fish. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't terribly uncommon. In the early afternoon that Sunday, a thief, Jerry Ross, also stumbles across the abandoned car with the trunk wide open under the railroad trestle and goes through it. Delana's purse was under the front seat as well as Gina's. He rifled through the purses took the cash, then threw the rest of it out his window as he drove away. Oh. Keep in mind, too, Sunday morning, Bill King and his date Robin would have driven by it on their way out from the lake around 9 a.m., according to testimony. Then again, Bill King and his son Todd drove by it going back to the lake house, as well as the other barbecuers that Sunday afternoon (laughs) for the hour that they were there. There and back would have passed the Monte Carlo. Trunk up, 
under the railroad trestle. Midnight Sunday night, that same deputy from before that originally saw it, drove by and saw that the car was still there, abandoned. And this time, he decided to call in the plates. Oh, I hope so. Jeez. Don't get too excited. So this is Sunday at like midnight. Right. The police hadn't taken the case yet. Right. So remember. 24 hours. They needed 24 hours. It hadn't been the required 24 hours yet. So when he ran the plates, it came up that it was registered to John Hall. And that's it. It wasn't reported stolen or missing or anything like that. Yeah, but still the trunk had been open all day, dude. I mean. Didn't even get out and look around. If only he had. Oh. He didn't even fill out a report. He was tired. He drove home. What makes my head dizzy is the fact that King had to have driven by this car at least four times, if not more. Wouldn't he have recognized the car? According to his testimony in court, he parked next to this exact car at the Marriott Inn Lounge. Right. And then again at his parents' lake house. There's not a ton of people there. It was just Gina's car parked there. I think there's so many holes in his testimony. It's not even funny. (laughs) So again, this game of telephone comes in. The description of how this car was found has been changed here and there over time. But I'm going to give the best description the car was found in the best way I can by cross-referencing Delana's story and what was described in the book Under the Trestle by Ron Peterson Jr. Okay. Ah, that's the name. I'm sorry. I just put it together. Yes, that's the name. Two friends of the Hall family out looking for Gina found the Monte Carlo. They made sure they did not touch the car. But peering in and walking around the vehicle, they did notice some things that were very strange. The driver's side seat was pushed all the way back. Now, Gina sounds a lot like me and that when she drove, she liked to be nice and close to the steering and wheel. she was shorter, wasn't and she? She was very small. She was about five foot. I've been made fun of many times for this as well. Delana didn't always think it was a joke. So the sisters shared this car (laughs) and she would always get a little peeved when she she drove after her sister (laughs) and the front bench was all the way up. So this was back in the day. It wasn't two separate seats in the front. It was a bench. So passengers were always joking with Gina that their noses were pressed against the windshield as she drove. Everybody would be like, yeah. Now, we know Epperly drove from the Marriott to the lake house. Bill King testified that as such. But we come to find out later from statements made by Epperly that Gina Hall drove him home that night from the lake house. Well, if that's the case, why is the front bench pushed all the way back like it was? And if she drove him home, why is Monte Carlo doing back at the lake? Another thing the friends see just by looking at the car is on the driver's side. The leather car door handle on the inside of the car was broken. Now, this is a sturdy leather car door handle. It's meant to withstand you swinging your door closed. Why was it broken? How did it break? Something of great force had to have caused that handle to break. This piece of evidence was pretty much just glazed over in trial later on. Delana holds this piece of evidence very close to her heart in finding Gina's voice to tell the story. She really thinks that something probably happened in the parking lot or in some situation where she was, Gina was trying to keep that door closed and somebody's trying to pull it open. Something happened 
where a fight ensued and that door handle broke. And I'd have to agree with Elena. That would make sense. It's, yes. So now enters in Virginia State Trooper Austin Hall. No relation to Gina Hall or her family, but Trooper Hall becomes the lead investigator on this case. Actually, there had been a shooting that same night that Gina went missing, so a lot of the officers were covering that case, Mm -hmm. and Trooper Hall was put in charge of Gina's. What's interesting is that he was a highway patrol trooper. Right. This is not really what he normally covers, but... He honestly did a very good job on this case. Okay, so we like him. We like him. Okay. We like Trooper Hall. And that shooting, just a little side note to mention, Delena has not totally written off the fact that that shooting may have had something to do with the people involved in Gina's death. There's no part three to this case. If there were, maybe I'd dive into that a little more. But like a decoy kind of thing? A decoy or just... A lot of drug dealers. There was Stephen Epperly had his hands in a couple of bad businesses. Oh, he was a bad guy. Come on. He wasn't into drugs or anything. He was really into keeping his body clean and like lifting no, weights but and he was, eating clean. But he would he would have been like the the bodyguard or something towards these these oh, yeah. guys. Yeah. Like he, yeah. Uh, okay, so moving on. <laughs> Again, we can't have a part three. <laughs> When Trooper Hall shows up and checks out the car, the case turns a bit scary for the Hall family. Trooper Hall discovers in the trunk of the Monte Carlo blood and what looks like hair. And this wasn't just on one side of the trunk, as if Gina Hall's body was laying in the trunk. It was kind of all over the trunk. Oh, geez. Inside the car, they discovered what looked like fast food for two people. The ashtray was filled with cigarette butts and a yellow Tennessee plastic cup in the cup holder. Trooper Hall calls into the station and reports that the Gina Hall case now had some suspicious foul play. Forensics were called in to take samples of blood, hair, and fibers, and police from Radford were called in and basically went door-to-door there at the lake, knocking on doors with a photo of Gina. Now, keep in mind, this is a 21-mile-long lake, Mm-hmm. There are over 300 homes. How in the world did they find the that fisherman that witnessed? He comes forward when they go to trial, I'm sure. This was all over the media in the oh. area. It's a no-body case. It's a really big deal. Jeez. Trooper Hall believed that Gina's body could have been dropped off of the railroad trestle bridge into the water. If that was the case, he and his team had to work fast. That river water flows very quickly, which worried a lot of searchers. Scuba divers came out making gridlock passes over the bottom of the poorly visible river. Search and rescue walked the river's edge. They searched for six hours until darkness fell and planned to restart the search Tuesday morning. And to hopefully make the search conditions a little easier, they got a hold of the dam there in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, It was not too far from where they were searching, where the car was found. And the dam agreed to slow the water down a little bit. So they thought that they hoped that that would help. Mm -hmm. There was a man the police were suspicious about at this time, Grig Bass. Now, real quick side note about him, but he was a close male friend of Gina's. They'd been friends growing up, I believe, but they were friends from her hometown of Coburn. 
I think it was kind of a budding romantic relationship, honestly. They wrote letters to one another and such. He was back home on leave from the Air Force. He was visiting his family in Coburn and had made plans with Gina that he would drive to Radford to see her Sunday morning before he had to head back to his base in Europe somewhere. Oh, jeez. I mentioned this as such a small spark note because I want to use it as evidence again to prove that I believe that she would have done anything to come home. She wouldn't just stand this friend up. No. And if she had feelings for him, she sure as heck wouldn't have gone to a lake house. with. That was my next point. Because of his visit on Sunday, why would she have stayed out late Saturday with a strange man she didn't know? It wasn't even her type. I also, <laughs> I also give this kind of spark note little thing because there's not really much out there about him. He was looked into by police, of course, for a time, even took a polygraph. But he had an airtight alibi and proved his friendship by extending his leave and staying in Radford to aid in the search for Gina. Okay, so it's Tuesday morning and Bill King is headed to his morning class. <sighs> Again, this is Bill King's narrative from the trial. I know it's under oath, but I take it all with a grain of salt. I know I shouldn't put my opinion out there this much when I'm presenting these cases, but I just got so caught up in this case when I was researching. Again, (laughs) thanks, Teresa. (laughs) So either he was driving to class at Radford College or driving from class. Resources are pretty interchangeable with this fact. But while driving, he heard the radio's PSA announcement on Gina missing. The Radford Police Department is searching for a missing person, 18-year-old Gina Renee Hall, who was last seen around midnight Saturday at the Blacksburg Marriott Lounge. She's five foot tall and 105 pounds with brown eyes and medium length brown hair. She was wearing white pants, a purple jumpsuit, purple shoes, and a white jacket. If you've seen her or have any information about Gina's whereabouts, please contact the Radford police station. King apparently right away knew the girl who was mentioned in the PSA on the radio was the girl that Epperly had taken home. Of course. Now again, he was heading to class at Radford College or from class at Radford College. Got it. But instead of going to his friend Steve Epperly, who was working there, as a maintenance guy, remember, oh, right. mm-hmm. on the campus, he drove to the Barbell Club, the place that those guys went to work out at, right? Yeah, where he knew the group from the Marriott Lounge night would be lifting weights. There were 10 guys there when King arrived, and by the time he walked in, they were already talking about the fact that Gina was the girl that Epperly was with Saturday night. Mm. They knew about his rough edges and his anger spurts. The rapes were all under wraps because, remember, he had been acquitted of those, but... They knew he was not the best guy to girls, and he was the last guy with Gina. They were all talking about it. So again, here's where the telephone game begins. Some say out of concern for his friend, he instantly went to be helpful to Epperly, leaving the barbell club and going to Epperly at work, trying to convince him to go to the police right away and work with them and kind of give him his timeline. But I see it another way, of course. He did leave the barbell club and go straight away to Epperly, but I believe from Epperly's statements, he did so maybe in covering his tracks. In King's statements? Yes. Yes. So King shows up at this barbell club where they're all talking. They're all water cooler talking about 
Oh, I'm sure because they had holy some cow Epperly's with that girl. Right, right. So he gets nervous because they're all talking about it. So he's like, I got to go find Epperly. I mean, it just it doesn't look like it's out of concern for his friend. It literally looks like maybe I got to go find Epperly to get our to story get our story straight. straight. Yep. So when he shows up to Epperly, though, again, this is all according to King's testimony. Epperly is concerned with who's talking about it and who knew that he was, in fact, the last guy with Gina and asks that King goes back to the barbell club and tells the guys to be hush hush and not make too big of a deal about it and her disappearance. Oh, my gosh. And King does do this. He goes back to the barbell club and tells the guys to simmer it down a little bit. There is no worry at all about what happened to Gina. He's concerned with himself. Of course. But Stephen Epperly does make the call to Trooper Hall and sets up a meeting for after work that evening. Here's good old Epperly with that good first impression. At first, it appears that he's just being an honest guy to Trooper Hall. He didn't seem nervous, was really easygoing. He gives a statement. He and Gina arrived at the lake house around 1 a.m. And the first thing Gina wanted to do was call her sister. But at first the call didn't go through, so he redialed for her, and then the call went through. He said he overheard the conversation, and he knew that Gina had told her sister that she was with a guy named Steve. After the call, he claims that he and Gina walked out to the dock and went swimming. She didn't want to. After that, he said that they went back into the house, chatted a bit, and he claimed that they did some kissing. He did say that he tried to take things further, but that Gina denied him. And that apparently she told him that she had a bad experience with the man and that she would have had to know him a little bit better before she went to bed with him. Epperly told Trooper Hall that he told Gina that that was just fine. And they just talked some more. Because he's such a talky kind of guy. Then Gina told him that she had a friend visiting the next morning and that the friend was going to be getting to her apartment fairly early. So she wanted to get back home. So they left the lake house with Gina driving Epperly to his parents' house, dropping him off around 4 or 4.30. And he claims that before she drove off, he'd given her directions back to her house because she didn't know the area very well. So again, why was that seat pushed back? Why was the car under the trestle? Yeah, why was it under the trestle? Trooper Hall isn't totally convinced. So he asked if Epperly would go on a drive with him out to the lake house. And out of the lake house to test for holes in the story, he asks for Epperly to kind of go through the evening with him a little bit again. Yeah. He's following his gut. If that's one thing you guys get from Killer Hangover, it's follow Follow your gut. Your Your instinct. Go with your gut. (laughs) In the retelling of the story, a little detail changes. All of a sudden it comes out that, yeah, Bill King and Robin Robbins were here. They saw Gina. We all chatted. Mm. Uh-uh. 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 <laughs> the two walk around the perimeter of the lake house. Bill King's mom and stepdad, the owners of the lake house. Y- yeah, they're still on their Myrtle Beach trip. <laughs> I don't know any of this is happening. On the drive back, Trooper Hall tells Epperly, you know what would be a good idea to clear you? Take a polygraph test. Epperly agrees to do it. No hesitation. And they set up a meeting for Wednesday. Tuesday night comes and Trooper Hall is on the fence with Stephen Epperly. Some went as far as as clearing his name in their minds. I mean, he went to the station himself. He went with Trooper Hall to the lake house. But Delana was not convinced. And by Wednesday, 
After some digging and calling around, the truth about Epperly's past is made clear and it's even more convincing to those close to the case that this Stephen Epperly is more than just that easygoing, chill guy he was portraying himself to be. Mm-hmm. Past records on Epperly be- become revealed. The rape charges, past threats, bar brawls, and the domestic assault. And police officers are even talking, sharing stories similar to the one I shared on last week's episode of that arrogant Epperly asking if he could be charged for rape. <gasps> Things started to fit for Trooper Hall, so he decides to put pressure on Bill King. He wants to figure out this story that Epperly had shared that King and his lady friend had chatted with him and Gina. Now, in Bill King's testimony, he stated that he willingly went to talk to Trooper Hall, that he called Trooper Hall Tuesday night and set up an appointment to chat with him Wednesday. But Trooper Hall testified in court he doesn't remember such a call, that he actually remembers having to track down Bill King. Yeah, well, I'm believing in Radford. The trooper. Okay. Sometime that Wednesday evening to chat. But just another game of telephone, I suppose, mm-hmm. in the story of Bill King's. Also on this Wednesday was Epperly's polygraph. He failed with flying colors. No kidding. A story that makes me really mad that Delana shared was that later on, Epperly was interviewed on some like news spot on TV and he was going on and on about I keep begging the police to take a polygraph. I'm working with them constantly. I'm here. I, I'll talk about whatever. I want to take this polygraph and prove to the world I'm innocent. Blah, 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 blah. The fact is, is that he had already taken and, he and failed, failed a polygraph. But the state couldn't tell the public this because it could hurt any chance at an appeals court. What a good liar he is. But yet this just, shows you oh. this. You can't touch me attitude his arrogance and it shows you this manipulated narration that's like been told this this whole story to look into a camera and to just blatantly lie is just oh my gosh john hall gina and delana's father even had a private meeting with stephen epperly the book under the trestle states that it was organized by the police that mr hall was patted down he got in the back seat of a vehicle with Stephen Epperly out near the train trestle on Hazel Hollow Road, just in case he did decide to confess and he could show them where the body was. And they drove. Mr. Hall begged for his daughter's body and Epperly didn't say a thing. Delana's story has that same terribly upsetting ending with no answers. But her truth is that the police really didn't have any involvement in this conversation. That John Hall was carrying during their drive around that day. But the sad fact was that it was during the drive and this small 20 minutes spent with Stephen Epperly that all hope of his daughter ever being found alive was exhausted. He got out of the car that day knowing his daughter was dead. So like I said, King was brought in for questioning Wednesday. And I already shared in last week's episode the little timeline that he shared. After King was interviewed, Robin Robbins was called in. If you remember from last week, there was a few inconsistencies between the couple's statements. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing that Trooper Hall took away from their interview was that neither one of them ever talked or saw Gina Renee Hall in the lake house that Saturday night. Yes. Unlike what Epperly had had said. said. Mm -hmm. Tests were done on what was found in the car. DNA was nowhere near where it is today. The hair found looked to be what Gina's hair looked like, and the blood was O positive. Same as Gina's. Same as a lot of people. Same as mine. The lake house was finally searched as well. 
Over a dozen small blood stains were scattered throughout the house, and it seemed like someone had even attempted to do some cleaning. But there were blood stains found. Most of the evidence was very visible, so it's not like they needed a blacklight. They could see the blood. And this was at the house. This was at the lake house. <sighs> Bill King stayed in the house while they were searching and apparently found an ankle bracelet on the spiral staircase that later turns out to have belonged to Gina. When his mom and stepdad arrived back from their beach trip, they're like basically just thrown into this crime scene. Oh, I can't imagine. I don't think anybody really even told them. I cannot how serious coming this all home was. and finding the gish. They were asked to make an itemized list of things they can see that are missing around their home. And they wanted, the police were like, you need to be thorough. Their list included a quilt that had been hanging on a quilt rack in the master bedroom, a striped towel, a bath towel, a bath mat, and I believe the lid to some cleaning supplies that had been used. Remember that wet spot Bill King yeah, mentioned? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This wasn't just some invisible wet mark. It literally was a large discolored spot on the carpet of the den in the lake house. Blood, wasn't it? A large pinkish spot left on the rug. I knew it. Someone obviously had tried to clean it up. Now, warning listeners, this is pretty graphic and it really hurts my heart. But there was blood found on the spikes of a golf shoe along with what, what looks along with what looked to be pubic hair. Oh god. The utility closet in the basement held most of the blood evidence. There was lots of blood splatter and they believed that was the most of it, just blood splatter. But upon opening the refrigerator door, they discovered under the fridge was congealed clumps of blood and hair. This had been a terrible rage-induced attack. Keep in mind, the Hall family and so many of their friends and family are out searching as well. Right. I mean, Mom, police were coming out to help the family on the weekends, on their days off. Jeez. Oh, this is just how moved their community was in finding Gina. They're all just searching and praying for Gina's body to be found. Scuba divers are in the lake, in the river. Friends are trekking through the woods. A purple heel is eventually found. Her clothes are found. The white pants and jacket along with the purple bodysuit so bloodied that the white almost looks maroon and the towels that were reported missing by Bill King's mother were eventually found as well covered in blood and fibers believed to be those from the carpet. All of these items were just found in the most random places on the side of the lake off the side of the road. So purposefully scattered. Yeah. And, and the towel had these fibers on it so they believe the towel was used to try to clean the blood from that carpet because mm -hmm. it was the fibers matched the carpet right. at the lake house now epperly was still meeting with police at this time even without an attorney well one day he is in a meeting with an officer williams when there is a knock on the door and it's trooper hall some other policemen and a dog mom this dog sorry love you three dogs here snoozing in this room but this dog his name was Harass 2. John Preston is the owner and trainer of Harass 2, and they had pulled into town at midnight one night and literally got to work right away at midnight. Before Preston had gotten there with Harass 2, they requested the police go to Epperly's house and get a pair of soiled underwear. Yeah. His okay. mom helped him out willingly. Really? Mm -hmm. Nice. At the end, it's really sad, but she did say she had no questions. She knew her son did it. God. Yeah. 
Anyway, oh, moving on. Soiled underwear. Out. Okay. They use the soiled underwear for the scent for her ass too. Mom, this dog traced a flippin' trail from where the Monte Carlo was left under the train trestle. That's where they started. Right. And then he traced a trail basically around town leading straight to Stephen Epperly's parents' house. Oh my gosh. Then they used one of the towels that they discovered from the search with the blood stains, and they lay like five towels on the ground about a foot apart in this auditorium, in a high school auditorium, and they had him smell the soiled underwear, and then they let him into the auditorium, and all these towels spread there. He went right to the correct one, and then from there, across the street, was the police station. From there, he led police right to that office where he was meeting with Officer Williams. Holy smokes, this dog is amazing. So here they come walking into this room when he's meeting with Officer Williams. John Preston explains all of this to him. He explains all the tracking that was done, leading them straight to Epperly sitting right there in that office. Epperly just sits there real quietly, looking down. Then he just looks up and says, that's a damn good dog. <gasps> that's a damn good dog. That's a damn good dog. Oh, three times. Gosh. During the continued investigation, Stephen Epperly did move away from town twice. Huh? But he claimed it was because he was being harassed oh so God. much in town. Wah, wah, wah. Well, it's all now, about him anyway. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is that he moved to the Columbus, Ohio area one of those times. And five days after he moved there, a 25-year-old female went missing in the area. It appeared that she had willingly let her killer in. Um, her car was found abandoned. Now, her body was found in a cornfield, but and police in Ohio did not see any ties tying Epperly to the case. But the similarities are hard for me to kind of like. I thought if somebody was a suspect, you couldn't leave town. He did twice. Eventually, Stephen Epperly did start meeting with attorneys. He nor his parents could really afford an attorney, but he was meeting with some that he knew through acquaintances and such, like asking advice. Quote, what can they do to me if they never find the body? Mm -mm. Like one of his friend's brother was like a high up attorney. Mm -hmm. He was like, hey, man, can you go ask your brother? What can they do to me if they never find the body? I mean, he asked the question. Just such an arrogant. I'm not going to go into the entire description of all that muss and fuss of his hiring an attorney. The biggest point to take away is that he couldn't afford an attorney, but he had one kind of like on hand. The guy had worked with him with the rape charges, I believe. Oh, okay. The guy told him that he'd be there for him, but if they ever went to trial, he was going to charge him a pretty huge hefty fee. His advice was to shut up and stop talking to the cops. And he didn't help the cool, collected, you can't touch me attitude that Epperly had because he advised him that if they don't find a body, you're as good as golden. Oh, jeez. Epperly does end up getting some judge appointed attorneys for the trial pro bono. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind, this is a no body case. That was a really big deal, especially for the Times. The first in Virginia only five in the country, it really was kind of an unheard of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in Texas, the state with like the highest death penalty, the hang them high attitude, they claimed no body, no murder. Steve Epperly had some friends in high places, drug dealers and such. 
There have been many assumptions over the years. I mean, just the way that the Monte Carlo was found with cigarette butts and the fast food and the yellow Tennessee cup. Stephen Epperly couldn't have been acting alone. Mm -mm. So many questions. So many theories. I could sit here for another 10 episodes and chat with you all about them. But because I really need a good laugh and my mom, well, <laughs> I need my mama. I need my mom to light things up. just looked over at me and just started laughing. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> I'm going to work my way to the end of the case. Stephen Epperly was charged with first degree murder just a few months after Gina went missing. Really? No weapon was found. No body was found. But with the mounting circumstantial evidence, it was clear to the jury that Stephen Epperly killed Gina Renee Hall. The physical evidence, the evidence from Harass 2 was brought to trial, which is cool. That's kind of a oh. rare thing, which that Stephen Epperly's awesome. defense wanted to fight because he was a German shepherd. He wasn't a bloodhound. And at, oh. the, at the time, oh. it was usually Give bloodhounds. me a break. I think they were desperate. <laughs> that stupid, arrogant question he asked came back to haunt him. And my favorite statement, that's a damn good dog, basically locked him away. Oh, it was a confession. Stephen Epperly was convicted to life in prison. Now, he was up for parole last year. He was denied, but he will be up for parole again this year. And I believe it's actually twice a year he's up for parole. Are you kidding me? It infuriates me. He still claims he's innocent. He's still arrogant. He's still holier than thou piece of beep. There's so much more to this case, y'all. Just in 2016, someone came forward saying that their family had been holding on to a big secret for all these years. A fisherman out that night said to have witnessed two men, two men, dismembering a human body. He saw this? He saw this. Other witnesses have come forward with claims of hearing gunshots coming from that lake house that night. And one report from a neighbor that came out to investigate the gunshots claimed to see a boat leaving the dock of Bill King's parents' lake house, driving across the lake and stopping, driving a little more and stopping, a little bit more and stopping. So what, that family secret of the fishermen seeing people, two men dismembering, dismembering a, body? a body, why didn't he come forward with that? I, I don't know. And it wasn't even him that came forward. It's his family that ended up coming forward in 2016. I mean, I'm sorry. It's not something you see every day. And it's. Uh, 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 <laughs> well, you know, what about that George guy from your story with Christine Rothschild? He just said that that roommate of his was kind of odd and kept to himself. He didn't, he didn't tell the get full involved. truth. He didn't, didn't want to get, get involved. involved. Yeah, I know. Probably happens more often than not. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. But he saw two men. If only this case had happened in a time where DNA testing was more advanced. You know, physical evidence they could have tested with the plastic cup in the car and the cigarette butts. I mean... Yeah, yeah, so much. There were psychics called in on this case. There were potential ties to other cases in the area around the same time that are suspicious. So many secrets... So much unknown. But Delena is at peace. She's taken a deep breath and has gotten rid of her hatred. She still holds some anger, but she's turned that anger into a huge search to find her sister and helping others. She owns a company that works in finding human remains. Wow. And she works for the good of the people. 
Delena was very helpful to me in this research. She is a very kind person. I enjoyed chatting with her. She has a book if you're interested at all to hear more of Gina's story told by her sister, The Miraculous Journey. You can also get more information at www.themiraculousjourney.com. All of the videos I mentioned that are on YouTube, they're on that website. She gives a timeline on that website. It's very interesting. Lots of pictures. And she's actually working on a second book. I believe it's called The Web of Lies. I wonder nice, why. Nice title. I will post all of this and links to all of this on our social media, in our in the resources listed on our website. But um, yeah, that is Gina Renee Hall. Thanks. You know something that has been bothering me? What? This whole time. Okay. And I kept my mouth shut because I thought, okay, because sometimes you say, I'm covering that later. I'm covering that later. <laughs> but you said something, and that was in the first part. First one. Okay. King had said, and he described Gina on the dance floor, and this was before... Mm, I know exactly where you're going with this. This was before description of anything came out, and he said she had white pantsuit on with a purple bodysuit. Under it. Okay, now, listeners that don't know what a bodysuit is... everybody knows what a bodysuit is. They're so in right now. Men don't know what a bodysuit is. Oh. (laughs) Well, <laughs> Bill King Obviously did. Obviously, King did. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that time, though, we wore body suits a lot. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a great way to keep your shirt tucked in. Yeah. <laughs> so I know I had several of them. How did he know it wasn't just a shirt tucked in? Maybe How did because he know it was a body Devil's suit? advocate, maybe because, like you just said, everybody wore body suits then. Not everybody did. How did he know it was a purple bodysuit? That was my question, too. And the way he even phrases it is just like a white pantsuit with a purple bodysuit under it. Yeah. I'm sorry. I mean, things that you have said. I'm like, dude, you had you had something, my to, biggest, do, something to do with My this. biggest giveaway is when in her most recent searches, they found Gina's DNA near where the Marriott Inn Lounge was kind of off the road it's now a paved driveway but it would have been just like a field mm-hmm. why is her dna there why is her dna there that makes no sense i think a scuffle went down there maybe that's where the door handle was broken or maybe I that door handle was broken in the parking lot yeah i don't i don't know and i don't think she'd let a strange man drive her car i don't think she would have even left the lounge with a man yeah we could we could sit here and talk about this forever but we need to lighten things up Back on our killer hangover pace, and uh, I'm gonna mm, try to drink this cocktail okay. you made. All right. Well, rest in peace, Gina, and I. I pray that they they uh, find and the family can rest. I mean, uh, this is just awful. It's terrible. Okay, we're gonna go to Lee Hall Village, which is right outside of Newport News, Virginia, and this is the Boxwood Inn Bed and Breakfast. Ooh, another bed and breakfast, Mom. But before it was Boxwood, it was Lee Hall Mansion, which was built in 1897 by a wealthy businessman, Simon Reed Curtis. The mansion was home to his family as well as being the commercial site of many of the small town businesses. Basically, they kind of started the town with this mansion. Yeah, wow. The mansion was the village's first home, but it also housed a dry goods store, a post office, a boarding house, and a tax assessor's office. So Holy all of that was in the house. Was it a very large house? It was a mansion. Yeah. <laughs> in 1862, Major General John B. Magruder 
and General Joseph E. Johnson made it their headquarters. Okay. During World War One and Two, Simon Reed Curtis and his wife Nanny Cook Curtis rented rooms to army officers and their wives. The Curtis family owned the house until 1996. Mm. At that time, it was purchased by Robert and Barbara Lucas, who potentially saved the old mansion from demolition. Oh. Renovating it and turning it to BB. It has to be really expensive to renovate such a large place. I can't imagine. I mean, I just can't. And, and turning it into. And all the, you know. oh, that's a lot of work. Now, here's the fun part. As we know, not all spirits are scary and ghoulish, <laughs> right? Right. Some like to play pranks and some like to have play fun games with the living and some, well, this one in particular is just plain friendly and helpful. Oh, I'm talking about the spirit of Nanny Cook Curtis. There are two stories that happened to Barbara Lucas as she was helping to restore the home. One day while working and she was all alone in the house, she broke a fingernail. Now we can relate to her oh. it's just plain bothersome to have that happen yes uh, but when it does you want a fingernail file you know right something to cut that down barbara who was alone in the house said out loud dang it i need an emery board a few minutes later she turned around and sitting there in the middle of years of built-up dust was a clean nail file oh. uh. the story continues barbara looked up at the empty room and jokingly said thank you now i'd like a hundred dollars yeah. <laughs> i would have said the same thing later that day as she, she found a hundred dollars as she continued working she felt something stick to the bottom of her shoe when she removed the item she saw that it was a gold tooth which she sold to a pawn shop for drum roll are you serious a hundred dollars a hundred dollars okay I need that ghost in my house, please. <laughs> Guests of the inn have reported gentle... It's like a magic genie, not a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> you have three wishes. <laughs> Guests of the inn have reported gentle knocking at their door early in the morning. Barbara thinks that it may be Nanny, who's used to helping out at the general store, which opened at six. And maybe she's gently waking people up. It's time to work, guys. Come Aww. on. <laughs> Another spirit thus often seen is an old man slowly walking with a cane. Some even say there are as many as seven spirits that roam the halls of the mansion. In November 2017, the inn was once again changed ownership to J.J. and Lisa Murray, who now own the mansion. The only change that they made was that they changed the name from Lee Hall Mansion to Historic Boxwood Inn. I just thought... We've heard of so many ghoulish. No, we needed a light, happy little ghost. So like, That's oh, awesome, Nanny. And this is not like the gra the what's the the laughing granny or whatever giggling <laughs> the granny. giggling granny. No. This is a sweet nanny. Yes. Okay, I do have another one that is a little bit. I mean, this was kind of crazy because we've not talked about one of these before. So this is in Wythe County, Virginia. In the 1700s, the property tenant, Joseph Baker, was brutally murdered by two of his slaves. They took an axe to his head. Oh, an axe. Then There's an axe. We haven't had an axe in a for story a while. in a while. I know. <laughs> then Ooh. submerged his body in a barrel of moonshine. Well, that'll get rid of it. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> in 1826, Squire David Graham 
bought the property, not knowing nor not caring about the property's past. It was also rumored that he was an alcoholic. You know, after this drink, I really don't care about much either. (laughs) I was just going to say that. And his wife, Martha Bell, suffered from severe depression. So the man's mind was definitely focused on other things than what happened to Joseph Baker, who he didn't even know. Right. Squire Graham was prominent in the iron industry, so he didn't exactly lack money. With that said, Cedar Run Estate began to evolve. Slave quarters and barns were erected, the grounds were tended to, and a mansion, Major Graham, was built. It was named after Major David Pierce Graham, the squire's first son. Okay. Which actually took four phases to look like it does today. An 11,000 square foot antebellum home. Beautiful. It's not. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) It is one of the dang creepiest mansions I have ever seen. Her face was so serious. It's not. Oh my gosh. Wait till you see pictures of it. Okay. It is scary as hell. What? Okay, what's this place? It's called Major Graham's Mansion. I'm looking this up now. I'm super curious. Because now. you love mansions and I antebellum do. stuff and all that all that stuff. Oh, oh. <laughs> yes, I can definitely see why this place looks haunted. Is that not creepy? Why does it look so creepy? I mean, I usually, you know, it kind of looks like uh, the house in Beetlejuice kind of on that one side. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that what an odd home. Um, you can tell it took them different phases because the parts of the house look totally ma- different. It's like here and there and everywhere. Okay. Hmm. So in the 1860s, when Major Graham came home from the war, he added onto the property and the mansion. So brick paths and a fishing pond outside. Nice. In the house, he added dormers, towers, and high-end furniture. Oh, fancy. The building became a living space, an officer meeting space, and a Confederate recovery center. Oh, okay. It is in this space that many have witnessed the apparitions of soldiers. Well, that would make sense. Makes sense. Which, by the way, just side note, everything I looked at. (laughs) Everything you looked at? Everything I looked at in Virginia for paranormal. Had, had to do with soldiers. The war. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of soldiers. And had a woman wearing a white dress looking out the window searching for her lost love. Oh, I man. Mean, so I disregarded all of those. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It was just like, okay, I'm narrowing it down. Another ghost who is often seen is one of a little girl, supposedly little Clara. She was one of the girls who Major Graham's sister Betty secretly tutored. Okay. She had turned a bedroom into a makeshift classroom. And when Clara died from an illness one winter, Betty wrapped and stored her body in the room. (laughs) Okay. Tried to take another drink of the drink, and then you tell me that all in one gulp. Okay. Why would she do that? (laughs) Little cacao. (laughs) Cuckoo clock going on here. Little cacao. Remember the wife who was suffering from depression? Yes. 
She ultimately became insane. Oh, no. Her spirit can also be seen in the many places in the house. Her husband eventually locked her up in the house. Oh, my gosh. Because she became so uncontrollable. Probably because there was some little girl wrapped up in one of the rooms in her home. Her signature and initials are etched into a window of one of the bedrooms. Oh. As well as scribbles in the basement that are thought to be hers. Oh, that's pretty creepy. So when you go down to the basement, you can kind of see like a, I don't know, a lockup room or something. It's all stone. Oh, that's so sad. She was. That's so sad. I guess he didn't know what else to do. I mean, she was uncontrollably mad. She was being like aggressive and stuff. Yeah, that's so sad. So the spirits I've mentioned are not the only ones that people have encountered. One additional ghost is that of Reed Fulton who was an eccentric law professor. He moved into the mansion in the 1940s. He loved to eat buzzard eggs. Wait, what? You know what buzzards are? Like, Are they bugs? <laughs> are they bugs? Like they're, buzz- they're buzzards. They're like vultures. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, here's a little beetle. I'm going to see what <laughs> eggs it lays. <laughs> oh. Make a nice lunch. I need 50,000 beetles in order to fill me up. Oh, yes. Hmm. Buzzards. We learn something new every day. I don't know how we found buzzard eggs to begin with. Yeah. But love to eat buzzard eggs. Is he just climbing in people's trees? <laughs> and, and he liked to splash in the Cedar Run Creek rather than take baths. Oh, he sounds lovely. According to some witness reports, his spirit actually stinks. I can imagine. Because in life, he never took a bath. Then he stunk. I bet he totally stunk. Sorry. So wouldn't that be you. weird to like walk into a room and all of a sudden there's this like body stench or something? And well, like, you know, oh, normally you well. hear about how like a perfume or yeah. something of a spirit, but then there's like a stinky guy. And that would make <laughs> and that would make total sense. Right. To have the perfume linger and then to have the stench That's of this guy. So funny. Oh. But wasn't he a professor? He was an eccentric professor. Oh, I wonder what he taught. Well. I wouldn't want to take his class. <laughs> I wouldn't sit in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> then there's the woman who has been seen at one of the bedroom windows. In white. Waiting for her love to come back from the war. I think it's the same woman. <laughs> that's in every house in, in Virginia. every house in Virginia. <laughs> She just mopes in everybody's windows. <laughs> well, it could be here or it could be here. Maybe it could be here. Many para- she searches high and low. <laughs> in her white dress. Many paranormal investigations have been done in the mansion as well as the grounds. Ghost hunters being one of them. Oh. Not adventures. No, not monsters. Ghost hunters. Being okay, season eight, episode five. Voices have been recorded. Sounds have been heard, like the swishing of skirts. Oh, cool. And footsteps going down the staircase. Today, Cedar Run is owned by Desiah Weaver, who purchased the mansion and grounds in 1989. Events, tours, and festivals are held at the estate, which includes the Graham Fest Music Festival, where attendees are introduced to the haunted past. 
Ooh, how fun. And like through tours, they yeah. take them tours through the grounds and the house. And sometimes they actually Is have. the house renovated? I'm sorry. Did you say that? Is it kind of. Is it I think he's done a good job in renovating it and really? bringing it. I mean, he. he yeah. And. Um, wow. That's, that's cool. And while they're there, they can also relax to music, live music that's played on the grounds. Oh, how fun. So the owner, Josiah, is very into music. That's really neat. Sounds to me more like folk music type uh -huh. stuff. So it's like a whole festival. So you buy a ticket to get in and it includes the house tour, the ground tour, listening oh, to music I would all totally day. totally do that. It's, yeah, it sounds like a really fun, a really fun event. Yeah. So did I bring you some happiness? Yeah, you distracted me for a little bit there. <laughs> that you did. Drink, which and the drink, which As much I as did. she does not like, there's only a half an inch left. Yes, there's only a little, a little sippy there. I drank it. I had to. There's <laughs> there's several more stories in Virginia. I mean, that was one place. Sometimes we struggle with finding paranormal. I don't know. But Virginia, definitely not. No. Lacking in. No. There were so there's many. so much history there. So many things to choose from. But I knew that your story was so important to get out and that this was, you know, just, just to lighten things light. up. Thank you, Mom. I appreciate that. Whew. Well... Friends, I'm going to give you a hint as to where we're going to explore next week. Oh, just a hint? You're not going to tell them? Uh, uh, this is uh, to be uh, spooky. Uh, oh, if you guys could <laughs> see her dancing. Uh, and this is not the wind blowing <laughs> palm trees. Mom, I hate to tell you, they've already turned us off. <laughs> Have you guessed yet? Aloha. Aloha. Which We're means hello and goodbye. Yeah. I heard it means hello and I love you. That's what Moana told us when we watched a Disney special. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it meant hello and goodbye. That's what we kept oh. saying when we were in Hawaii. Yeah. Hello, I love you. Yeah, you could hello, have been telling love strangers you, you love them. <laughs> Next week, we will be covering back to our normal episode, a true crime and paranormal story from Hawaii. Yes. We will be posting all the links and resources from this episode to our website, which is www.killerhangover.wordpress.com. If you just can't get enough of us, you can become our patrons. Hey, and let us know what you think about the new release of last week, the uh, listeners episode. Yeah. Did you guys like them? We really enjoyed doing that extra episode for you guys. So send them in. Send them in. Keep sending us your stories. Killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. They can be true crime. They can be paranormal. They could just be a little message that says, hey. We'd like to do it on the 7th of every month. So keep them coming. Plus, by the way, <coughs> my birthday is January 7th, and that's the next listener's episode. So uh, just saying. <laughs> this is another good one, Mom. Woo. It was. Yes. Heavy duty stuff that you shared. Thank you very much. I'm happy to lighten the load with this very heavy drink. <laughs> Another good one, Mom. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. I love it. Aloha. <laughs> love you, kid.